Hey everybody and welcome to episode 16 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. And today is the last episode of the series and it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Asking for a Parent podcast today, my sister, Eleanor. Eleanor is my sister, but even if she wasn't related to me, she would be a fabulous guest to have on this podcast. As well as being entertaining, witty and engaging, Eleanor is a very interesting story to tell. To me, it's a story of resilience, perspective and warriorism. The Eleanor that sits before me now is a very different person to the person I grew up with. Not only because she's not a sulky teenager anymore, but because her life has undergone what can only be described as a transformation. But I let her tell her own story as she captures it better than I ever could. But I think to myself, whenever I have a moment where I feel my life is hard, I think of Elle and I'm quickly brought back down to earth. So for the listeners, I just want to introduce you to my older sister, Eleanor Birmingham. Eleanor, how are you? Hi, Co. How are you? Uh, I'm laughing at the older sister bit. <laughs> I, I am the older sister, yes, of course, even though I feel like I look a lot younger than the rest of you. <laughs> well, you certainly, I think, have aged better. With a bit of help, with a bit of help along the way. Absolutely. Um, no, how, how, how are you doing? Come on, my children are in school. So when my children are in school, I'm doing okay. And that is a very much a defining kind of web absolute of whether things are easy for me or whether things are not easy for me. But I'm doing good. I mean, like everybody else, it's been a tough year, but I've had tougher. And I think, as you said there to me, which is funny, because, you know, when you think you're struggling with things and you say, oh, it's very hard, then you think of me. And so many people have said to me <laughs> over the last few months and years, Eleanor, when I'm sitting there demented, I say to myself, well, look at Eleanor, isn't she? What, <laughs> what have I got to be complaining about? So it's actually quite funny that I have heard that numerous times. But look, I'll start at the beginning of my life as such, just to give a kind of a flavour of where I came from. And like you said, I would have had been a completely different person when I was growing up. I mean, I had a very charmed, I would consider charmed life. I had lovely parents, really was quite, I wouldn't have been like really intelligent, but I was well able to keep up with things and I was a hard worker. And from an early age, I was quite a perfectionist and that everything that I did had to be perfect. I would be always the one that would be studying for exams. I would spend hours on my hair and my makeup and my clothes and had a passion always for beauty and glamour and superficial things. I remember like going to college. I did beauty therapy college in Kugenberg. And of course, I was top of the class, student of the year, got the job teaching and I had this dream that everything always worked out for me. I just felt that I was nearly entitled to it. And when I would see things, people sick or people with problems, I kind of thought, well, those type of things don't really happen to me. I kind of thought maybe I was a little bit special or something, not special insofar as, but privileged and lucky. And, and that would never happen to me, you know, and um went on to work, lovely jobs. And I ended up, having my own little house at 25. Now I have to put in here that that was support and help by my parents, but I had it. It was a little small terraced house, but I loved it. I had a great job working for Clarence as an area manager and great lifestyle, loads of lovely friends and loads of fun and plenty of 
what you would call good times and very, very happy and contented and very little anxious. I wouldn't consider myself to be in any way anxious or any way struggling with things. So I met this guy and he was like the perfect man. I think I was around 30 and I thought, this is it now, sure here. Of course, I'm going to meet this perfect man. And you will probably remember, Colm, it was like a little bit of a fairy tale because we knew their family, they knew our family and were quite well and everybody clicked into place and everybody loved him. And I was whisked off my feet and had a really nice time leading up to our marriage and really lovely wedding. And I remember my biggest worry when I laugh. I actually laugh now and I think but my big worry and anxiety come was, would I get a cold sore on my wedding day? And this would have been like the end of the world for me to think that I would have a cold sore on my wedding day or that the hairdresser mightn't turn up or something like that. And I can remember even you wrote on my um, card, on the wedding card, the fairy tale is complete and um, everything was really good. I mean, can you remember back to those times as an outsider, as a brother looking at it, looking at it from your point of view, like would you have seen it like that too? Yeah, well, I just remember you You drove a BMW 3 Series. You uh, always had Gucci tracksuits and, you know, you had what was, I suppose, the perfect life. And, you know, in terms of everything did seem to fall, not because you didn't do work, you did. You were a, a really a grafter in that sense. But, yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a fairy tale at that point. And I think up until that point in your life, you probably were the envy of most people from the point of view of, how things had panned out for you, I think, at that point. Well, certainly for myself and my other sibling, we would have looked on and gone, oh, she's got Yeah, it all a lot there. of people would have said, oh, look, well, for her, like, you know. Mm. But <laughs> life is life is a funny way of kind of changing on its axis. And I think the first sign that things were changing for me was I struggled to get pregnant. I had... I thought I would be pregnant the first month. I was like, oh, I'll be pregnant now and this will be fabulous. And I'm going to have two little children and they're going to be little blonde haired angels and they'll be doing all the lovely things. And I I was such a perfectionist. I consider myself now a recovering perfectionist because I've had to let go of so much of my idealism and so much of my my dreams for what my life would become, as you'll hear as the story progresses. So I struggled to get pregnant and my pregnancy was very difficult and my child was born prematurely. And from the very beginning, there was problems with Mikey. Mikey was in an incubator. He was he was like a head lag, low muscle tones problem with his eyes. He never developed in any way, shape or form as other children would. And I know my sister at the time had a son, Luke, who wouldn't be that much different in age. And I could see the difference. And I knew in my gut that things were not right with him. And I suppose that was the start and the beginning of my my kind of panic and where my anxiety would have began because I just couldn't believe that this was happening to me. And I went into a zone of fixing it. I mean, he was at every therapist, play therapist, speech and language therapist he could barely even was carried into speech and language therapy he was at every healer I remember mom had him with 
gloves were appearing from these different Padre Pios and different things and people were praying and he was at a psychologist and neurologist and everything and I threw the kitchen sink at him and it really like was something that I thought I would be able to fix you know I thought if you put the effort in and you really try this can be okay but it's it never was okay and Mikey has very significant autism he's 13 now and he has absolutely no speech and he has always suffered from challenging behavior and challenging behavior would be a nice way of saying physically aggressive like it's it's you know he lashed out he would self injure he was biting his own arms like very young age he was headbutting he was i mean he, everything we did every therapy everything and i really kind of struggled then and i think i remember mom it's coming down and saying Eleanor you're not managing well and it was a great help for somebody to come in and say that because I knew I wasn't I was suffering terribly from anxiety and I don't think I'm an anxious person naturally but I think it was a reactive anxiety because I'd never had anything go wrong in my life and then suddenly this huge huge insurmountable problem was there and the worry of it and then the constant not sleeping and like all that goes with aggression and a child that's agitated and the child that's difficult it's really hard like you see even with animals it's a it's one of our most basic instincts that if there's something wrong with our young it really affects you so I I really struggled and at that stage I went I remember going to the GP and then I went to a psychiatrist and I got some really good help then and looking back now that was such a was the right thing for me to do I got put on some mild SSRI antidepressants for which really helped with my anxiety because I mean I was at the stage where I couldn't swallow I actually felt like I couldn't swallow I often look back now and I'm looking at the mirror at the big belly and say God be with the days when I couldn't couldn't swallow I wish I had that problem now No, I do not. I think there is nothing worse than anxiety. I'd rather have any physical pain or ailment than suffer badly from anxiety because it's torturous. And when I hear teenagers now or I talk to friends and people now with anxiety, I just say it is horrible and it's rampant and it's treatable. I would have had I think it was you guided me a lot to help me to get the right psychiatrist and I did CBT just cognitive behavioral therapy I would have done a lot of counseling and I think it gave me a toolbox to kind of compartmentalize it a little bit because it was my whole life I mean I woke up in the morning panicking about him and I went to bed at night panicking about him and it was a horrible horrible time And in the meantime, I was so active. I was constantly researching autism. I was on every autism group. He was in like a little OT and speech and language group from about two. He was he was everywhere. He was play therapy, craniosacral therapy, every therapy that could happen, you could do. And like he was about two before he walked. He was he was really difficult, like a difficult child. And 
I always say about autism and my friend Karina uses the analogy of autism as being like a meal. So you can have a little side order of autism. So you can have your child, they might have a little touch of autism or maybe a dessert. And then some kids have a main course of autism. And then other kids can have a starter, a main course, a dessert, and probably an L Irish coffee thrown in afterwards. And my Mikey is the, the full kit and caboodle. He has the whole lot. He has the learning disabilities. He has everything. I mean, he's 13 now. He's a big lad and he's, he, he's, he's in a great school. He gets great support and he, he's on really good medication to suit and keep him calm and keep his mood. But he would still have daily outbursts and daily problems. And that is so hard to live with. So that's Mikey. That's my first son. Then I had a second little boy called Dara. And Dara, I thought, here we go. I'm going to get the chance now to have the normal experience of having a typical child. I'll be able to talk about, oh, yes, my little child is so funny. And he said this. And what group are you going to? And is your child going to dancing and be like the normal mommies? And I remember about 18 months looking at him one day and going, there's a few little things there. And the question I had was maybe it was copying Mikey. Maybe it was mimicking Mikey. I remember talking to you about it and you said to me, like sometimes when you have a child with a disability, you might be super vigilant in watching the second child. But my gut kind of told me, I mean, we would have the basics in the autism world of do they clap? Do they point? Do they wave? And he was doing a little bit of stimming, which is repetitive behaviours, probably from about 16 months. And I kind of knew there, here we go again. Now, if we were to use the analogy of the starter main course, a dessert, Dara would probably be between a starter and a main course, if that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense to you. He wouldn't have the, he wouldn't have anything like the difficulties of Mikey. But the two together in a house is very difficult. So Dara would have been about two and I was just coping, Coleman, with it. I was just coping with the two. I had Dara privately diagnosed very early and I remember ringing the preschool that Mikey had gone to and having his name down at 18 months before he was even diagnosed and saying, I hope I'll be cancelling you, but I have a feeling I won't be. And we were there with the two children and I had given up work, obviously, which I loved. And I felt that I had done that for the best of our children, you know, because it didn't make and no one would want, would mind, no one would be minding them. No one would take them on anyway and worked better for our dynamic. My ex-husband has his own business and he needed to be working very hard. And then we had an issue there when he came out to me after a period of struggle for himself as being gay. So I was there suddenly with two autistic children and a gay husband. I suppose people don't talk a lot about gay people getting married, but it is so prevalent. Hopefully not so much now, Coleman, you know, because I'm sure you see a lot of young people and it, it does seem to be more acceptable nowadays to come out and say you're gay. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we've still a long way to go, but we have come so, so far in, in terms of in the last 
decade or so, I think it is, it is a different task for people, for sure. Like 20 years ago or more, it would have been very difficult in a religious kind of, you know, Catholic Ireland to say, and I find that a lot of men who got married when they were gay were total homophobics themselves. They really didn't want to be gay. That was the last thing they wanted to do. But it still was a huge, huge shock. So I found myself a single parent with two children with autism. And as I say, that is, it's hard to have one child with autism. It's hard to be a single parent of one child with autism. It's hard to have two children with autism. And it's triply hard to be a single parent and deal with the emotions of your husband being gay. I mean, there's been a lot of publicity about like Philip Schofield coming out and about, um, you know, how hard it is for the men. And it is horrendous. And I visually watched the struggle that my ex-husband went through and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But the wives are you know, there is a huge proportion of wives on our left. And I also was a carer. Now he's been a great dad and he's very involved with the boys and takes them every Friday night. I live for my Friday. I live for my Friday nights when I can have my night off and my day on the Saturday. And yeah, it's worked. We have, we, we have a good relationship. And like, say, for example, for Christmas now, he will come here for a couple of days over Christmas and stay here with me and the boys and his partner and we will have a lovely Christmas and they want him here and I want him here and he wants to be here so it doesn't you know sometimes I think you know maybe would it have been a little bit more difficult if he had left me for some young hot blonde one and then I'd have to be jealous or feeling like oh my god you know what 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 does she have that I don't have but I don't have that question I don't have to ask that question and we 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 work it well but it's 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 been like like one thing after another and you kind of feel a bit punch drunk by it all you know so that kind of is my story so I'm here at home with the two boys I have a gorgeous assistant dog called Ralph who's 10 he's golden doodle from my canine companion he's coming up to retirement age but he's been fabulous for the kids and and um, the two boys and uh, that's really where I am and that's my life and I have bad days and I have good days and I I often think, you know, the tools that I learned when Mikey was born first enabled me to cope with what came after. The first shock that something would not be perfect and that that would be okay kind of made me feel I can cope. Whereas before that, I used to think everything had to be perfect or I couldn't cope. Does that make sense? It does. <clears throat> I, I mean, I, I suppose from my point of view, I'm, I look at you, I mean, again, like myself and, and my other sister, Catherine, like we can never go up to mom and say we're having a hard time because she just says, well, look at Eleanor. You know what I mean? and <laughs> poor <then> Eleanor, <laughs> poor Eleanor. Oh, Lord. <laughs> but uh, there is a kind of a sense of, and I think everyone who knows you will marvel at the way in which a, yes, you've managed these really difficult circumstances, but you still manage to be bright, engaging, 
cheery. And I know, look, we all know you don't have that all the time and it would be unrealistic to say that you don't have your own dark moments, but the way in which you maintain a degree of optimism and drive and energy and you like you are perfectionist to you're a recovering perfectionist but you're still very thorough in everything that you do yeah I mean a lot of my resources would be my love has always been beauty and glamour and clothes and I still like people would laugh at me I my children could be up at five o'clock in the morning I could be dealing with toileting accidents I could be black and blue and I'll still go out there put the makeup on I think that's the Kugenbergen training <laughs> back in the when I was 18 you must put on your makeup and what gives me such a lift is things like getting a blow dry buying something to wear and also another thing to point out is that when people get separated everybody is a huge financial change in your life regardless of what you start off with money wise there's very few rich separated people out there by the very nature of separation and having two houses and two bills and I know it from all my friends it's a whole life that's a different you you live a different life I mean there's no BMWs for me and I can never see myself <laughs> the only BMWs are the kids the ones that Dara lines up in rows downstairs in the sitting room and then Mikey comes along and flings them across the floor <laughs> I have one child that loves everything to be neat and tidy and the other one that detests anything like throws everything everywhere so we have great battles here and I'm constantly battling with the HSC for more supports and more respites and I'm videoing here I've had I've done more videos if the videos were sent out to the public I swear to God <laughs> people would be saying ring Tosla I'm there one day I was there one day home with an actual brush because Mike was trying to attack me and I was holding the brush like as a sort of a defense mechanism to keep him back from me <laughs> And I said, you know what? I really hope that they do see this in the HSC because this is what I'm showing them because I'm begging them all the time for more help. And they're telling me, you're on a list, you're on a thing. And I think what Miriam touched on before is so important that there is no help for us and there is no support for us. And I'm blessed in the fact that my two boys go to great schools, but I fought for everything and I'm fighting still for everything. I'm fighting for respite. I'm fighting for supports in the long term. I To live with the fear of the future, like I know Mikey will never be independent. He's not even to speak. I have to dress him and wash him and do everything, you know, and it's it's a different life than what I had ever anticipated. But you know what? Sometimes, Coleman, I think, and it's it helps me as I look at somebody else and people say, oh, poor Eleanor. And God, you know, I oh, imagine you had to do what she had to do it. I look at some other friends of mine and family members and people that I know well and vaguely. And I, I look at their whole life and I look at their husband and I look at their kids and there's parts of it that I'd say, Do you know, I'd love if my kids were like that. But then I say, right, if I was to have that, I would have to have all of their life. So I would have to have their husband and that would have to be my husband. And I would have to have their problems because everybody has problems. Everybody has shite. Everybody has ailing parents or illnesses or cancer or fighting among friends or no friends or worries or things that keep them up at night and sometimes I think you know okay mine is really horrible and it's really tough but you know I don't think I'd actually swap 
completely because then I'd have wouldn't have my own family I wouldn't have my own friends I wouldn't have my own way of doing things and I wouldn't have my own bit of crack and personality and I really this sounds mad but there's nobody who I would want to wake up tomorrow morning and be if you had to take it all you can only take it all you can't be a la carte and say I want the good things that they have and it's like the old saying, people say, you know, you, we all throw our problems into, into us, into the ring and sit back and read everybody else's life and the problems and what they're dealing with. We might often take our own ones back and mine are tough, but overall they're mine. And I wouldn't be without my own friends. I wouldn't be without my family. I wouldn't be without my supports that I have. And even my relationship with my ex-husband and his partner and my relationship with all my extended family. And I have such a great support network and such a great support of friends. And I love to laugh. I love to get out. I love to go away for a weekend. I love to go away for a few days in the sun with my pals. And, you know, it's the little things like that that I say, would I really want to be that person and take their whole kit and caboodle and you know it changes your perspective sometimes to look at it like that yeah I think in terms of the the because you said about those things that you do to maintain mental fitness and your support of family and friends and your nights out and your blow dries and all that sort of stuff uh, the COVID has been particularly difficult because a lot of those things have not been available to you as a parent yes and a lot of the services were not available through a lot of lockdown for Mikey and Dara either. Yeah, I, I think from the point of view of like, you are the most well-researched person in autism that I have ever known. And I know <laughs> in autism who wouldn't have the knowledge that you would have. But the idea that like you have a brother who is involved in the trade, you have access to, you've gone to every therapist that's ever existed. You've done I've everything. done every course. I've done early word courses, parenting courses, Hannon courses, every course that you could possibly do. I have done, like I have, I have immersed myself in the world of autism. And you know something, Owen, one of the big things for me has been to accept that I can't fix it that was a big turning point for me because I struggled and I struggled and I felt I was failing because I wasn't fixing it. And now I realize that children with autism and disabilities and everything have their inert capability. They have a learning ability. They have an IQ. And sometimes you cannot force them to be what they're not going to be. And a huge part for me has been accepting that. Like, I know Mikey will never live independently. And my worry always is when I'm gone. And that's why I try so hard for him to get into respite, to be with different people, with home support, to grow some bit of independence. Because minding him here all the time on my own would not be good for him. And I think the acceptance is a very important part of dealing with it can I ask you when that happened when you it was gradual it was gradual I think people I used to hear the miracle stories oh my they talked at six and they talked at seven and they talked at I would say Mikey's now 13 I would say about when he was about nine because I would look at children of 18 who were similar to Mikey and I would see that there's very little difference in them and Mikey 
And, and I would see I, that. Mo- and can I ask yes? you what the difference that acceptance made? Huge. We've never talked about that, but. Um... It made a huge, a huge difference because it took like you always feel you're not doing enough. You know, you're looking at other parents and oh, um, people are doing all this Instagramming and this and, and doing that. And you feel like I and I can say with my hand on my heart that I did everything I could possibly do for Mikey and possibly Dara didn't get as Dara got a lot of support as well but Dara didn't get as much I think it's because I had finally realized that he's going to school he's going to horse riding he's going to his kids craft he's going to this he's going to that he's doing what he can do I have him in the right place he's going to speech and language he's doing this he is he's 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 getting everything that's it Rather than constantly, constantly looking for something else, this looking, what more, what more, there has to be more. I kind of know now that there isn't more. And I sleep at night knowing that I have do- I've done what I can do. And all I can do now is fight for services. I can fight for a, a long term residential place for Mikey when he is older, because that's where he's going to need to be, because he's the height of me now and he's the strength of me now. And like I have been here at nights where the electricity has gone and the Wi-Fi is down. And like I laugh sometimes you when I listen to your stories about the screen time and I, I'm not for one minute like, you know, being sort of, what would you say, dismissive of people's concerns about their children's screen time. But in my house, the only crisis about screen times is if the battery dies. We have to have screens. We have screens constantly because that's what my, all the Mike, Mikey wants to do. And it keeps him calm and happy and he watches pictures and he has a telly on with Mr. Tumble continuously on and he has a screen, his iPads, and then we have a second backup iPad. So if the electricity goes in this house, he can't understand that the lights don't switch on and off. He can't understand. He's switching them on, off, on, off. He can't understand that the telly can't work. He can't understand that the Wi-Fi can't work. And I am completely, I mean, I've had to ring my ex and say, please come over and help me. I'd be there with the candles and they're blowing out the candles and Dara's singing, happy birthday. As I'm lighting the candles, he's blown out the candles. You know, it's like a madhouse. It really is. Like, you know, it's, it's like something out of a... <laughs> but I, I think that point about the acceptance being important is really important because I think in many ways, sometimes it is the hope that kills us in, in, in some respects. But And I th- had, when my years of my anxiety was bad, it would have been in the early years where I was really struggling to accept. I couldn't believe that this was, was going to be my child. I what, loved him and adored him and I could not accept for one minute that he would not be able to function normally and that his disability would be as significant as it is. And that's come from dealing with parents who have children who are like, there is a lot to be said in anything, be it if you're a separated parent of an ex-husband who's gay. I have a part of a group called Straight Partners Anonymous. I'll just give them a mention if there's anybody else out there that's in that boat that needs support on Facebook. There's a huge amount of support and there's a huge amount of knowing that somebody else is going through the same thing as you. And I, through Mikey's school, would have met parents of older children who were maybe five, six, seven years older than Mikey. And I saw that, you know, this happens and this is okay. And we we get on with it and we deal with it. And and I'm not the only one. And 
I have t- fully accepted it. There's not to say that times I don't feel really sad and it hits you the odd time. You know, he would be going into secondary school and I'd get a little, you know, pang or I'd see a child his age doing something or saying something. And I, and Dara is like hilarious. Dara has autism. He's a very anxious kid, but he's a very funny little child. And he entertains me no end because he's just like, going around he wants to know every single bit of information about every single little thing and he if Mikey does anything wrong he's very very intolerant of that and he's have to, he has to accept it as well so I find with me I'm kind of saying to him Dara this is Mikey Mikey does not talk he's not able to speak so sometimes he shouts and um, we have you know we have to be calm So there's a lot of, you know, we all have to accept it. He has to accept it. I have to accept it. Their dad has to accept it. And it's easier then when you do accept it because you're the fight of the fighting goes out of it then a bit. Not the fighting that you're still fighting for services, but the feeling that you're responsible and you're not doing enough goes out of it. Yeah, I think from the point of view, I can fully appreciate your idea around acceptance. But I think the one thing we can't accept is the lack of services and i, I no, know no, no, about that no already. no 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 um, it's so fragmented what i find now i'm going back to the old days and they weren't the good old days by any stretch of the imagination but if you had a child like mikey with a disability they would be engaged in a service mostly a church run and i mean i'm not saying they were good bad or indifferent but there was a continuity of care where somebody took over it was a cradle to a grave situation where they organized their schooling, their respite, their, you know, it was somebody t- took over and somebody helped you. Whereas now it's all outsourced to put private companies. So like even the bus going to school is private, is it separate. The home support is separate. The respite is separate. The OT and the school age team is separate. Like, so say somebody offers me respite for Mikey. I'm so excited. I'm dancing around the kitchen. I'm, he's thrilled. He loves going. So I then have to contact the home support and change that. I have to contact the school and tell them that he's going to be going from school. I have to do all that coordination and organization and working out the hours and main onto the HSE to see, can I use those hours at a different time? And then you might have an emergency case in the respite because they're completely overwhelmed and there's families that need a child in a residential situation whereby there is no residential situations or they are takes far too long and parents are in crisis where they can't manage them they're teenagers and so they may go into an emergency which could be your respite house which means then your respite could be cancelled and then you have to go back and tell everybody sorry can you come back and give me my home support hours? Sorry, I can't go here that I was meant to go because I can't take my two children in the car, Coleman. Like I have, before COVID, I had a Perspex screen in my car. I always look at the Perspex screens everywhere and go, I had them before the before they were popular, before they were even heard of. I had one because Mikey could lunge at me from the back of the car and pull my hair as I'm driving. You know, that's the reality that people don't realize. And I think it needs to be said, you know. So now I've been told I can't travel with the two of them in the car because it's too dangerous. So it's constant juggling of trying to get somebody to go on a bus and somebody to bring and somebody and then an escort is out. Or, You know, it's a full time 
job, you know, and it's exhausting and you need to have the little bit of time. And I can find myself here with doing my, I could be here like, and people saying, God, help her. And I could be here going, I just have to go upstairs when Kara comes in and just have a shower and put on some tan. And that like, just needs that space from constant. And, you know, the funny thing is I used to always beg and dream that Mike would speak and he never spoke, obviously. And Dara never stopped speaking. Dara talks constantly. It's a case of be careful what you wish for. All I hear day and night. Mommy, mommy, mommy. I, what question? What color is Newbridge? And um, what's Co's new Jeep? What color is Co's new Jeep? Then we have the whole question of, which is quite funny. If he goes to someone else's house now, he'd be questioning, why do the mommies and daddies have to have a different, have the same bed? Like, should they not have their own bed? Because like he's only ever grown up where I have had my own bed, you know, <laughs> it's funny. And then he's like, Eleanor, if he doesn't get an answer, he goes, Eleanor, Eleanor, Eleanor. And I'm like, I prayed to hear a child call me mommy for so many years. And now I just want silence. I just want them to be quiet, please. <laughs> But, but I suppose, Eleanor, what, 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 I, what I would say is, and what brings a lot of the public debate is around, oh, if you have private health insurance, if you have this, you'd be all right. In the case of autism, it really is... It makes it, no it, difference. The no. services aren't there. And so it They're makes no They're not there. Odds. Like Miriam was discussing the schools. You want to look at this after the, when you get to secondary school. I mean, the school situation is appalling. Like there's so few schools and the lists are so, so long. And there's so many kids without places. And there's so many kids in inappropriate places. And it's horrendous. But you jog on 10 years. And I'm telling you, when you're looking for adult services, you're like literally let off on your own. Go and try and find somewhere for your child for adult services. And I have friends now who have kids and oh, not kids. They'd be over 18s and they're getting a couple of hours a day. And these are young men that need to be occupied, you know, appalling. And the respite services is like one house for 50 kids. And you no, know, I just to be clear, I am blessed with the schools I, my children go to. I am blessed with the respite they are absolutely fabulous. I'm blessed with the home support team that I have, but it's just, I fought, fought, fought for it and I need more of it. And I worry about when Mikey is 18, which is creeping on, like he's 14 now, going to be 14 next year. And I have the puberty, which is fab. Oh God, now that's another story. The puberty is appearing with the child that has no not understanding of what's appropriate and public and what's not is another great fun element to it all but just when you think you're getting a bit of a hold on things then there's something else appears you know <laughs> literally and from the point of view I mean again because you have researched this so much and be and again uh, we've had some questions in but people knowing that you were coming on and I think yes and I, I think the lived experience of your own experience plus your there is nothing about the autistic services that I don't think you know, or certainly have. There's no rock that hasn't been unturned. From no, the there's not. And there, it's appalling and it's not good enough. And there is so many people who are struggling and it's a huge impact on the kids, the adults, the parents and the carers. Huge. And, and, and Eleanor, you, you would be involved in a lot of the, if we can use it, the kind of autism parents communities in terms yes, of you, yes. other parents who you'd know. And 
again, from the point of view, of oftentimes the, the difficulty when these questions come into something like the podcast is without a service to direct people to, sometimes the answers may seem a bit piecemeal or, you know, from the point of view of wait and see and they may indeed be unsatisfactory but I think that's I'd love to be able to say because I know a lot of where what they need but I just can't tell them where to go to get it like years ago speech and language therapy would be done one-to-one with the parent in the room so the parent would be in the room with the child and they would be engaging and watching in what the therapist was doing and then they would learn what to do now the latest way that they do it for young children is they have one, because they've no staff, they have one therapist or one speech and language therapist with 30 parents and they're standing at the top of the room and they're going, okay, this is what you have to do with your child. Now you could have the side order of autism child, sit mother there. You could have somebody whose main first language isn't English. You could have somebody like a non-verbal child. You have a mixture of parents with a completely mixture of children needs and completely different level of requirement. And all they're offering now is seminars and group sessions and nothing like what, and I can see coming down the road, even the amount of residential houses and the amount of people that need to be in them. And everyone's told they're top of the list. I have about five friends who are told they're top of the list for the residential services with these grown men that are you know really need it and they can't be managed at home and they're top of the list and then something you know it means do you have nothing. a do you have a do you have a theory on why it isn't popular or why it isn't a, a, a health agenda that it's high it isn't high on the options to put services in place i think it's money I actually genuinely think it's money. I mean, it's going to cost you the same to have one therapist for one hour with one child as it is to put one therapist in one room with 30 parents, you know, so it's not rocket science. But but if we think about if we think about the mental health costs to those parents, though, as well, uh, you know, if you're trying to get through this without support. There's going to be costs elsewhere. There's going to be huge costs. And I see with people, I mean, I have I have good coping mechanisms that I've learned over the years from and it's taken me years to have them. But I see a lot of parents and I think it would be irresponsible of me not to mention things like alcohol and things when it comes to stress and when it comes to parenting, when it comes to Irish parents and COVID, because so many people don't have that. And then there's the risk of self-medicating and okay, it might make you feel a bit better for a while, but then you've you've the it's worse for anxiety in the long term. And it is an issue because I've seen it. I see it all the time. And, you know, I suppose I have often had to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and face into a toileting accident. And I also have my my beloved projects and my CBTs and my EFTs and all my little bits and bobs that I do. And even my things like putting on my body lotion, my sleep body lotion and my spraying my pillow, silk pillowcase and getting my eyelashes done. But there's a lot of people who will go, OK, I, I can't cope. I'm drinking a bottle of wine. And that has to be mentioned, not only for COVID parents or not only for, sorry, not only for parents with disabilities, but just generally for people who are not getting support. It is a huge problem. And I think, and I suppose from the point of view of just recognizing your your honesty and bravery in telling the story. I mean, obviously, I've lived alongside it with you over the, the last decade or, or more. But not, I don't think we've ever kind of sat down and went through it as a, a narrative or a dialogue. And it is 
when you hear the layers of of challenge that you've gone through and and just the honest way in which you've told it yeah i just want to say thank you on there for that I, well i wasn't gonna I, I said to myself there is no point in me coming on with the sugar coating there's mm. no point in me coming on with the oh this that and the other you know this is my life and this is this is these are my children and this is the hand that i've been dealt and i have to do as the best I can to look after myself because you do have to look after yourself but you can't look after your child unless you look after yourself and 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 hopefully that the services I think it, it, people are so jaded parents with children with autism that it's so hard to fight it's so hard to keep fighting it's so hard to keep fundraising it's so hard to begging from your families for things that should be automatic and they're very foolish, the government, because they're only caught putting in place insufficient services so that they're going to cause themselves longer in the future. There's going to be more kids that are not going to be able to function. So they're going to be in need of help for longer or forever, which is a fortune because it's all private companies now. Mm. There's it's, And it's it's the private prices. Sure. You know? and, and again, I suppose it's a symptom of our short sightedness, but we better get on, Eleanor, because there has been some questions have been sent in when uh, I announced yes, last week yes. coming in. And uh, just before I go into that, I just want to give the listeners some perspective on how what type of a researcher you are. When Eleanor was doing her driving test when she was about <laughs> 17 years of age, she went into the driving instructor with a fool's cap book that was filled front and back with all kinds of different scenarios of what if a bird flew from the left-hand side when I was on the yellow box and I turned right. So there, she is a phenomenal, this is a PhD in, in autism <laughs> services that, that you're going to be encountering today. So I, I feel very comfortable having my sister on board to answer these questions with me today. So, Eleanor, do you want to start with one or do you want me to Yeah, start? well, I, I have one here. I First of all, I have to say I have, I'm blessed in my school that we have a behavioural analyst there. We're one of the very, very few schools in the country called Wendy. And Wendy has helped me with some of these answers. So I, even though I do have a lot of experience, I would not feel comfortable to give people advice specifically without checking with her that it was appropriate what I was giving. And obviously some of it will be more to do with your side of things, with the psychotherapy things. And Wendy's would be more to do with the behaviour. So question one here, my two children both have diagnosis of autism. And just as I'll say this, Coleman, it's so common that if one child in the family has autism, another child in the the family has autism. I never knew that uh, up until... I started seeing my children in school and I started seeing them into siblings, them into twins, them into everything. So just that's not uncommon. Of ASD and ADHD, they struggle with interception difficulties. My youngest of the two, a boy, is aged eight. He doesn't recognise bladder movements and often has accidents due to this. He realises a bit too late. We have ruled out medical issues first. So just on that... I feel with children with autism, they don't sometimes have the same feedback, sensory feedback in working so that sometimes with Mikey with pain or that, they don't feel it the same way that we would, whatever way the connections are. So obviously this little guy is not getting the feeling of the urge and recognising the urge to go. So what Wendy has said is what you would do first of all is take a kind of a record about how often he needs to go to the toilet. And then do up a little schedule for him and he can have whatever, whatever little way of writing it out or a little chart. And when he 
it's due to go a little buzzer or a little alarm will go and he will go and then after he goes it will be reinforced with something like a treat or some some screen time or whatever the child wants and do that and make it into something that he's aware he has to do and something that is scheduled on a time scale and that when he does it he will get a reward for doing it rather than just um hold, you know asking all the time do you want to go do you want to go kind of make that into a little kind of reward chart if that makes sense perfect yeah 100 and uh, there's a, another question came in there with this question as well there is a question of he's extremely defiant if anything is requested of him so again with the defiancy might be something more to, that you would be able to give a little bit of feedback on a defiant child that's defiant yeah I think from the point of view of trying to managing defiance is about consistency and it is about again going back to kind of predictability I mean the, the issue around challenging behavior is about visibility the child who is, is defiant is getting more visibility around their behavior there there's probably a reinforcing element to it and it is about trying to again condition the child over that you don't reward the defiance in any way, shape, or form, and by or and, give in to it, or give in like to I'm, it, yeah, give in to it or whatever. And the also the daughter who's eleven seems to have an issue where she doesn't seem to feel hunger or thirst. I wish my Mikey is the opposite. I think it's partly due to the medication, but he's eats. He, I have to hide food here in the washing machines and everything because he's always eating. But this girl, it doesn't recognize hunger or thirst. She needs to be constantly prompted to eat and drink, and just said she doesn't know what hunger feels like and can never remember. Again, that would be back to the scheduling small meals small amounts and rewards after it and if it was the fact that she seemed to be very thin or was affecting her nutritionally then obviously you would go to to a gp and have that investigated but start with it being rather than waiting for the urge that it becomes a little part of their daily routine that they do it automatically at certain times and small amounts and reward afterwards Perfect. Thank you for that. The second question here is, my eight-year-old has been diagnosed with high-functioning autism in the past number of weeks. He has no issues academically or intellectually, but struggles with the social and emotional side of things. We plan on telling him of his diagnosis at the start of Christmas holidays so that he has time to absorb the information and ask questions before he goes back to school. We said that we'd let him decide whether he wants to share his diagnosis with his classmates or schoolmates or others. And the teachers in the school are aware of my son's diagnosis and have been very supportive. They've implemented the recommendations of the psychologist who carried out the assessment and said that they will support my son if he does decide to share his diagnosis and will educate the class or school on when it's required. What do you think of our planned approach? We don't want our son to be ashamed of his diagnosis, but we don't want him to be labeled because of it either. And there's a history of friction between him and some other children. So we're trying to find a balance in relation to telling or not telling people. Uh, your thoughts on this would be much appreciated. Now, in terms of the, the issues around diagnosis is a common thing that comes up. If, in, in terms of the issues around diagnosis, the, di the dilemma for parents is, you know, you can give a diagnosis which creates a level of understanding, but then you're also giving a label which might disenfranchise the child from opportunities. And so this would be, I think, what this child is, is probably describing as a kind of a side order of of the yeah, side order, yeah. side order. So this child is very functional, but there will be 
perhaps limitations in terms of his ability to read social situations or the social and emotional maturity trajectory may not be what it is. And so this may be causing him some social difficulties. And in terms of understanding that you are unable to do something or having an understanding as to why something might be difficult for you does give children an an understanding as to that they don't feel blamed for it, that they don't feel responsible for it. So the child who's, for example, gets a diagnosis of dyslexia has an understanding that it's not because they're not bright or not clever or not intelligent, but that they have a difficulty that makes reading or, or taking things down very quickly an issue. And so in that man, in that way, the diagnosis can create an understanding and can, can alleviate a little bit of blame. The risk of it is, of course, this, the social stigma side of things. And some children will, you know, they like having extra support in schools, albeit laptops, et cetera. Other children will will balk at the idea. And again, it comes down to the individual. I mean, I would test the waters with how they understand the, the ASD diagnosis, what they understand it to mean, whether they feel comforted by it or whether they feel kind of that it helps them to understand things a little bit better or whether they feel embarrassed or ashamed of it. It's trying to work with that. I would think obviously giving them the the few weeks to think about it before returning to school is useful. I don't see the need to do kind of public announcements until the child is, is comfortable with the diagnosis themselves and has a better understanding of it. I think that can come later. But I think your approach is, is on the money here from the point of view of trying to give them an awareness of it, allow them to see what the benefits of the diagnosis might be, but also being wary as to the downsides of it. And again, you know, the other risk for parents is that people will will lean on their diagnosis and say, well, I can't do this because of my ASD or I can't do that because of my ADHD. And they use it as a, an, an opt-out. And I suppose from the point of view, it goes back to what we've talked about throughout the podcast, which is where you can distinguish what your child is unwilling to do versus what they're unable to do. And trying to create that difference is so important in how you parent children. Children who are unwilling may need a, a, a nudge and a support and, a, and perhaps even a sanction at times. And those who are unable need the arm around the shoulder and the support to be able to do it. And so it goes back to that again. But I, I would see nothing wrong with that strategy to kind of highlight the, the diagnostic indications with the child and help them to kind of come to terms. with it. I also would like just to add there, time is amazing to like, I remember when Mikey was diagnosed initially, I needed a lot of time before I felt comfortable to talk about it or same thing with my ex. It took me time. And then you you need to process, you need to absorb. And like Christmas holidays is not very long. So it might be something that it might take even a, a year or two before he wants to, to share it. And I've it's so funny because I know a little guy and I was bringing my dog, my autism dog, into um, the unit in Dara's school. And the, the sister, who's a typical little girl, um, was very jealous that she wasn't allowed to visit the dog. And he was very proudly to say, well, you don't have autism. So he's only visiting the autism children. So, you know, this is years uh, later after he absorbed it and knew it and understood it. So it can now I go into the hairdressers and someone says, have you any children? I go, yeah, I have two autistic children. Are you married? Well, my husband came out as gay. It's like so natural to me and so, so comfortable to me. But I couldn't have done that six months after any of those things have happened. And I can imagine with children the same thing sometimes. So lots of time, I'd say there as well. Absolutely. And, and time is an important component to let these things ex- let them sink in. And again, it comes around 
maybe to what you talked about earlier around acceptance and things. Acceptance, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, another question, Anna, and I'm going to give this one to you. My daughter seems to be in her own world all the time at home and outside of home. Uh, how can I bring her back? And my son, uh, who also has autism, loves to run off on roads, even when cars are coming. How can I help them stop? Okay, so I'll start with the sun and the running. A lot of autism children bolt. They, they're, it's, we call it bolting. So they would have no awareness of danger and they would run. And sometimes it's nearly like a little game of, oh, chase me, chase me. Or sometimes it's that they're overwhelmed sensory wise in a shop and they just want to get out. Or sometimes it can be that they don't want to leave a situation. So if they're in a jumping place that they don't want to go, um, they'll, they'll start this running around. So... We personally have found the assistant dog to work very well in these situations because the dog is physically attached to the child. So the dog is, there is a, a, a lead that's collected or, or connected around the waist of the child. And then the dog is, the child has freedom to go, but he can't run. Um, also, they say a weighted backpack like we're all into the OT guys are all into the weightedness, the heavy weighty, weighted blankets, all that kind of thing to give them that bit of sensory input and, to, you know, kind of calm the nervous system down a little bit. And also to increase the amount of exercise that he has in general. I would also say that if it's happening when you were saying you're going home, that you give plenty of notice that we're going home and you do like a little social. We do a lot with autism of social stories where we say we are going to this place with a picture then we are going here then we will buy a bar of chocolate and then we will go home so that it's very clear that we go and get the bar of chocolate and then we go home we can have it in the car or something so that story is clear before we go does that make sense uh-huh yeah uh, um the, the little, little one about the 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 little girl in her own world if we could answer if we could answer that question that would it's such a like it's such it's such a thing that I it's such a hard answer question to answer and um, my first thing would be and this is from from Wendy as well to be sure that she has some methods of communication be it speech and language therapy if she's not verbal there is really good systems called PECs or picture exchange where they can you know use pictures to ask or request or you know use them instead of words and both of my boys would have started with pecs and Mikey continues to this day to use pecs so it's a method of communication because they if they're in their own world and they don't have speech it's very hard for them to communicate without screaming or shouting or you know having a tantrum so also to be sure that she's in, she's only three, that she's in the correct environment, because sometimes in preschools and um, with the best will of the world, little children with autism, if they're quiet and good, they can be just kind of, you know, let get on to their own devices, if that makes sense. Whereas if you're in a specific ASD preschool, you will have somebody that will be bringing you or an assistant that will be bringing you to the table to do things that will be helping you to engage with, you know, doing activities. And also like we, my, both of mine went to Jonix, which is an ASD um, ABA preschool, and they would have had huge support in even helping them drawing. They would have had, just, you know, a lot of social stories, a lot of, 
a lot of just basic stuff. So just to make sure that she's in the correct environment and not just getting lost in a mainstream environment. And again, working on the speech and language and the communication so that she has some way of communicating rather than just squealing. Okay, thanks for that, Eleanor. We have another question here about a child, a six-year-old son with ASD and ADHD. We're just about to start him on Ritalin to help him focus and concentrate in school. How long should I give it uh, if we have side effects before I throw the towel in? I'll take this. Uh, you take answer, that, yeah. The answer there is, I mean, Ritalin is a, is a medication called methylphenidate, which is used uh, to treat uh, ADHD. Uh, it's a quick acting medicine, so it tends to work fairly quickly. There can be initial side effects a little bit around appetite and, and maybe uh, a quietness in, in the child themselves. I would give it a, a certainly 14 to 21 days to try and get a decent look at, at the impacts of it, both positive and, and work out whether it's having a more positive or negative effect. And it is an effective medicine on the behavior and works well in many cases. But obviously in cases where uh, the, there are side effects or if it doesn't really isn't making that much of a difference uh, that you can see, then you can obviously review that in line with your medical prescriber. Yeah, I'd certainly give it a, a little bit of time. Uh, there's another question here, Eleanor, about uh, early onset puberty. Uh, yes. A seven-year-old suspect might have early puberty is actually possible and how can I determine what's going on can you help well I I ran that through that with Wendy so there is actually a a rare condition called and excuse my pronunciation pre-precocious puberty so if a child has pre-precocious puberty they will have a lot of physical symptoms of puberty so they will have like the the pubic hair the underarm hair they will have the, the voice deepening, the growth spurts. What we would expect to see at a 14-year-old will, will be happening. If it's not that, and what the person is talking about is maybe just more genital touching, sometimes with kids with autism, they're not aware that it's not appropriate to do that in public. So we have to emphasize that, yes, it's okay to do this, but this is something that we do in the privacy of our room. So with Mikey, we would have a card to show his bedroom. So if we see anything of the genital touching, which is quite common, we would show him the card. This is your bedroom. This It's not wrong. It's normal. We don't cause any, any you know, issues around the most natural thing is the natural sensations but at the same time it's not appropriate in public you do it in your bedroom so if it's a case that this little boy is just on you know it's a genital touching thing then it's about okay you need to do that in private in your room with your blinds pulled or if there's other symptoms they need to seek medical help and check that it's not something hormonally or endocrinology wrong perfect thank you another question here my question in relation to my son who's 12 years old he's attending a mainstream school with SNA support. He was non-verbal until five, now fully verbal, although the last SLT assessment showed him as having significant speech and language difficulties. Uh, he's high levels of anxiety, finds confrontation of any kind really difficult to handle with problematic being in sixth class where the children invariably have arguments over football and the like. He's typically a respectful, quiet child who loves to socialize and loves school. However, lately his mood at times has gone from high to low rapidly without obvious reasons. In the schoolyard, there's been problems lately where other boys will get into arguments over football, which he gets extremely distressed and will tell the children they're horrible and they're bullies. And this can cause him distress from the rest of the school day. This obviously impacts on him and other classmates and his teacher and getting many notes home. He's uh, engaging a lot in repetition or echolalia around face yeah. masks and hand washing. 
his teacher, the resource teacher, has been doing her best to help to move forward. But I, I don't know how to reiterate it. It's, it. We tell him it's unkind to use words like bully and horrible. I've spoken to him many times about not getting involved in others' arguments, but it doesn't seem to be seeping through. Unfortunately, so many concepts are abstract to him. He also wants to be like the lads, as he puts it. But emotionally, he's a few years behind and becoming more apparent now. He also has a borderline mild intellectual disability and it really impacts his, on his processing ability. I wonder if there's any strategies that might help. I mean, I'll just say that this lady sees you doing a lot already in terms of the, the social coaching for this child. And again, the, the issue around mood comes in a lot around that kind of the, the sadness or the unexplained sadness yeah. that children experience. And you might speak to that a little bit. But from the point of view of the, the social coaching, it, is, it takes a lot of time and, and scaffolding around the child to try and work with that, which I think this parent is doing. It might come down to that maybe acceptance of the limitations, that these are the limitations that this boy has and maybe trying to, to work around that rather than maybe expecting too much of him, if that's a fair... Yeah. He may, this may be a case of not being able as opposed to being unwilling. Uh, and and supporting with that. But what I can say to this listener and the person who's emailed in, you're almost doing everything that you can. It's a bit like you, Elner, in terms of no matter what you put in place, the, the changes may not be what you'd hope them to be. Uh, and it is a slow process. And as you say, it takes time. Anxiety as well is a huge, travels a lot with autism, travels a lot with high functioning autism. You rarely see a child that has high functioning autism or side order, as I call it, without anxiety without mood, without that kind of up and down. And, you know, autism rarely travels alone. There's often little extra issues that they have to deal with. Again, maybe a little bit of CBT or a little bit of counselling might help as he gets older or like that. It's a case of you just sometimes have to say, well, this is part of the condition, you know, and we have to just um, help as best we can. If that makes sense. For sure. And there's another similar one about a 10 year old boy with anxiety as well, uh, had got some professional help some time ago. During that time he required, he requires transitional objects, which are kind of things like soothers and things to kind yeah. of get him through things and sensory things. He's been much better, better in the last couple of years, but uh, through COVID things have seemed to have gotten difficult. He's now engaging in a thing called hand licking. Yeah, after washing his hands, he oftentimes mentioned how particularly with COVID, this is not advisable. He's very hygiene conscious in the general sense, washing his hands straight away after getting home. But from the point of view, this seems to be something that's kind of getting out of hand again. And what I'd say is, you know, COVID has been difficult for children with underlying anxieties. And again, it has created an exacerbation of a lot of the symptoms with and the inability to access the support services that normally would be in place over the COVID period has had an impact. And I think that's come up. Uh, it came up certainly when we spoke to Miriam Kenny earlier in the series that the loss of the interventions over COVID has had an impact on children with autism who need that predictability and consistent support with it. In terms of the strategy around managing the anxiety, the, the hand licking to me is a is a coping mechanism from the anxiety as opposed to... It's like a nail biting yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. It's, it's, so it's, again, yeah. You're, you're supporting them to find other ways of managing it through the use of, if he is a sensory child, there may be other ways in which uh, even an OT assessment or something might be Yes, I was just going to say OT assessment or some sort of fidget toys or something like that that he might be able to sort of use as an alternative that are more appropriate. 
And I, and I think that's more or less all the questions we had. We had one last question that I, I want to answer very quickly. It was a lady got in touch with me through Instagram and she said that her son is, is 11 and he's due to get a, a six-figure sum when he's 18 years of age due to an accident he was in. And she was really nervous about that he'll blow it. Uh, I think that's an understandable anxiety if he's 18 years of age. But I think the issue around, and again, it's not my area, but I would suggest that you know, placing some influence on value and saving and being sensible between over the next seven years would be the piece of work that I'd be doing as opposed to, uh, you know, kind of leaving it till he's 17 years of age. The, these are value systems take a while to develop and they take some time to kind of create. So I think from that point of view, that would be my tip to that. That listener would be to do that. Eleanor, you had no other questions your side. Have we got no, to them? That's, um, what all, that's all I have here for you, Cole. That's it. And so from the point of view, Eleanor, uh, again, thank you so much for being a guest on today and, and for, for telling your story. And I, I appreciate that, as I say, we have journeyed together through much of it. But <laughs> it is. And I, I, I would say to you that, you know, I think our own experience of growing up, we did have, and I don't want to say an idyllic childhood because it certainly wasn't that, but we did have, there was a very core message in our own parenting or yes. parented by both our parents. And that... we were blessed. And I, I wanted to, I meant to earlier, I know we're running out of time now, but I do have to say we, we wanted for nothing and we had everything and we had a lot of love and a lot of support. And um, in particular, like our mother is a saint. I always remember she was the local, she was a nurse and or she is a nurse. And anytime there would be anybody in the area or anybody that needed care or help or support, Brenda would always be called and she'd be there. And I can remember my cousin saying one time, I love Auntie Brenda, but if I wake up in the hospital and she's at the end of the bed, I know I'm on the way out because she'd be called for every, she'd be called for every local emergency death everything like that and I think I got some of my caring abilities from her and uh, my dad has our dad has been the best grandfather that anybody could ever be he's been so loyal especially to Mikey he is down here he would take Mikey out for a walk and Mike could run off into a shop and rob sweets or he could sit in the ground and Brandon will still Gaga will still take him out and he's one thing that Mikey missed so much during COVID because he just adores him and he's been like that with all our all the grandchildren hasn't he he really did he came into his own when he became a granddad I think from the point of view of I, I don't know I don't I, I think dad's was kind of a very typical Irish dad when we were growing up he mightn't have been very emotionally affectionate or anything that, that wouldn't have been part for the course for our experience of it but he was a hard-working man but when he did become a granddad I think there is the, I mean the warmth and affection the that warmth shows. and the love and the the genuine mm. like the the continuity I mean I think from the time Mike was as been a baby he would be down to me and he would always say to this day in his 80s Eleanor I'll go down and sit with him if you have anything to do you I'll take him I'll bring him for a walk I'll do this I'll do that I mean he's there's be very few people who, who take on Mike you know and he would <laughs> he mm. seems to get on fine that's the mad thing but, but again it's uh, kind of unconditional isn't it in the in the sense that he will he has no expectations and like he will come in and mike will take off his coat immediately and we start with the joy like he hadn't seen him there a couple of weeks over lockdown and like it did my heart good to see the absolute joy on his face to see him 
and I'm, we've been very blessed with that. And I suppose we carry you carry it through as you grow up, you know, and it does certainly help in your own kind of managing things as they come along then. And I think it is, I mean, it, I think those coping strategies that we do lean on in our adulthood, many of them do come from that experience. And again, I think, you know, from when we were growing up and I, I always think about it from my own experience of mom, maybe that she always believed in us. And I think from the point of view of, you know, even if I can remember, you know, getting in trouble in school for something, there was never a fear that she would take the side of the teacher over us. Do you know what I mean? Oh, there was no, a, she no, always no. had our side. And I th- I always kind of relate to that where people say, oh, if you got in trouble with the, the priest or the teacher that the parent would think you must have done something. But mom would never have done that. I think she always would have. We She always had our back. Um, yes, definitely. Definitely. Uh, sure. I remember going in with stories that weren't even true. Such a buddy said something to me and mom be there. And oh, my God. Saying, you know. <laughs> You, you were innocent until proven guilty. I think that was it. Innocent. And um, yeah, so we were very lucky from that sense. And yeah, look, uh, it was really good to talk to you today, Co. I hope I didn't say anything to ruin your career. I'd say you'll be doing an awful lot of editing, but uh, best of luck with that. No, listen, <laughs> before we finish, just to say, Eleanor Birmingham, thank you so much for being a guest. It's a pleasure. If it's helped anybody, if anybody out there, if it's helped anybody out there, I'm really, really pleased to do it. And um, it's a privilege. And thank you so much, Coleman. We're all really proud of you. Thanks so much. <laughs> and and okay. in light of that, just to finish off on the, this episode, I will say that our next series in series two that we're coming out in January will be specializing in uh, kind of specialist parenting roles. So we will be talking to people who have children of additional needs. We'll be talking to, to same-sex parents uh, and we'll be talking about, you know, maybe a bit more of a diverse selection of families and how the struggles that they go with. And so it was uh, very apt to, to finish off the series with Eleanor's story. Uh, My alternative story. <laughs> because it leads, it leads nicely into the second one. So uh, um, thanks, Eleanor. Thanks for that. No we'll problem. talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye. That was a wonderful Eleanor Birmingham there. And Eleanor's story, I think, emulates something of what we've all maybe had to struggle with over 2020. It is a story of resilience and bouncing back and putting things in perspective, which has been experience of most people, I think, over the last 10 or 11 months. And we hope that the podcast has acted as maybe an accompaniment or a distraction or even a source of advice during a really difficult time. And we just want to thank everyone again for listening, downloading and sharing the episodes over the the last month or two. We are, as I say, absolutely blown away by the response. And, you know, it's phenomenal that we are approaching 20,000 downloads. When we set this out in October, we had no idea or expectation it would ever get that popular. But in light of its popularity, we will be returning for a season two, and that will be hopefully around mid-January, and we have some great guests lined up for that. And I especially want to thank Adam Tattersall, who without him, this would never have happened. His time, dedication, expertise in editing and advice and support and production of the whole series from start to finish, uh, I owe him a debt of gratitude because, as I say, without his work, expertise and knowledge and direction, we wouldn't have been able to put this together. So a big thank you to him. And in light of as we approach Christmas, before I wish you all a very happy Christmas, I want to say to you that we're going to sign out today on a story of a, a song from a Irish artist. And we know that the music industry has been badly hit by COVID-19. And in a, a gesture of support, we would like to play a song by an Irish artist called Mo Malone. 
And this is her song called Home. And she's based overseas and she's talking about her memories and thoughts of Ireland. And I think as we approach Christmas, you know, the Dublin airport is a notorious spot for the tear-jerking returns. And maybe that won't be happening as much this year for people, but we hope that you enjoy this song and we hope you have a wonderful Christmas. And we really look forward to chatting to you again in January as we try and make it through early 2021. Now, I just want to say a very happy Christmas to everyone and a very prosperous wishes for the new year. But until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. I wrote my name in yellow paint Laying on my doorstep out to my home Sometimes I saw a castle Sometimes one bed and just four walls But it was my disguise It was my shelter, was my home oh, oh. I'd open the window and look outside And welcome the people that we'd have by Talking for hours over board games Remembering all those happy days at home Alone when dragons fought in witches' cold, and times when I would shed a tear, but never lasting thoughts of fear at home. Don't take me away, just take me home. Don't take me away, just take me Shelter was my home. home I had a place to call my own A place to keep some things no one did know It was my only secret I tell them later when I got old And built my own big castle And had a fortress of my own My own This would always be the first place where I laid my head Footsteps where my parents said your home, safe inside your home. We'll miss you when you go, but you're always welcome. Four walls, but it was my disguise. It was my shelter, was my home.